0: My handle is Jonathan Blade. Welcome to my podcast. So, I was cleaning up my computer the other day and I came across a PDF of a conversation. I had downloaded the conversation to PDF uh, from YouTube with an old Sega Saturn developer. Uh, This was incredibly interesting to me, uh, interesting enough to download the PDF, because while I don't engage with video games the way that I used to, I used to engage with video games. I was a hardcore gamer in the days before online multiplayer ruled the roost. I always liked games, but I was enamored with the engines can ne take the strain factor of developing for a fixed platform over the course of years, and then being forced to make that platform sing to an audience with a short attention span and just enough disposable income. So that was my interest in years of the most passionate rivals since pro sports and politics. So the console wars probably officially go back as far as their consoles to compare, but they didn't become a high investment marketing gimmick until the fourth console generation. The generation of 16-bit CPUs, Mode 7, and Blast Processing. Realizing that this episode is even more for me than the others that I've done, I'd like to talk about the competing technology of the major consoles of the 4th and 5th generations and their respective strengths and weaknesses. So, Generation 4 was the 16-bit generation. Uh, I guess we should define that up front. Usually, and it can mean a number of things, It can refer to a, a bunch of different parts of the system, but usually 16-bits, uh, 32-bits, whatever, Uh, at the time, refers to how wide the instruction set that the processor can process uh, can be. Uh, And in the Nintendo generation, in the original NES, it was 8 bits. And then following that, double the width, so it can process twice as much instruction at one time, uh, the 16-bit generation. So, usually, uh, the generations of technology were not as cleanly delineated as they were in the 5th generation. Uh, Even the 5th generation itself is not cleanly delineated because the first 16-bit console, the first console of the 5th generation, was actually an 8-bit console. Uh, In Japan, NEC launched a console to compete with the NES that was by far more powerful than the NES, known as the PC Engine. Uh, This was known as the TurboGrafx-16 in the United States of America. Now, the reason I include this is because while the TurboGrafx-16 didn't do gangbusters business here in the States, uh, the PC Engine was huge in Japan. It was a big, popular console with a long lifespan. It came out in 1987, and while it had a 16-bit graphics processor, its CPU was 8 bits. Uh, the console was very powerful compared to the NES. Because of its its relatively advanced graphics hardware, it could do a lot of sprites on screen, uh, large sprites that were fast and stable and pretty. It had a really nice color palette, so it only supported 512 colors, but it could display about 90% of those colors on screen at any given time, and the color palette was was bright and vibrant, it really popped. Uh, compar- like, comparatively, the Genesis also did 512 colors, but it could only display 16-bit, uh, or 16 of those colors at any given time, uh, at the beginning of its generation, and then once Sega released more advanced coding tools, uh, it got or development tools, it got up to 61 colors on screen at the same time, but the color palette in its entirety was less vibrant than the palette that was used uh, by the TurboGrafx-16, or the PC Engine. They were actually uh, very attractive games, the only thing holding it back was that the PC Engine didn't do um, some of the more advanced effects of the generation, uh, because its CPU was not as advanced as what was on the Genesis or not as advanced as what was on the Super Nintendo, but also its its graphics hardware was not quite as advanced in uh, ways that counted. Uh, but it was a, an amazing system for its proponents. Uh, the sound quality was closer to the Nintendo Entertainment System than it was to the Genesis or the SNES, but the graphics were on par with what was on the Genesis and the SNES. Maybe a little bit less parallax, a little bit less like raster-based effects, or scanline effects, but yeah, it was beautiful. It it kicked out some really nice quality games for its generation, but and this is how it goes throughout the console generations. Basically, when a console is released, that's it's made with whatever the most reasonable technology for the price is available at the time, and then The next console that is competing with that console, unless they're released at the same time, is just going to be more powerful because there's better technology available. And in this case, the Genesis was the next console released. It came out at the end of 1988 in Japan or the beginning of 89, uh, and I think it came out in 90 or late 89 in the US. And the Genesis was a beast. Uh, Both uh, sales-wise, it was a super popular console, and the way it was marketed in the United States was incredible. It did very well. It lasted uh, throughout that generation and just glommed on to huge amounts of the the mind share of the generation. It was known as the Mega Drive in other localities. It was known as the Mega Drive in Japan and the Mega Drive in uh, Europe as well and it did not do as well in Japan or Europe but did incredibly well in the US. Uh, the Genesis had a Motorola 68000 processor, which is actually a 32-bit processor. I think that the bus coming off of that in the Genesis is a 16-bit bus. Uh, There's something that that makes it not perform at like 32-bit processor levels, Uh, but it's it's a fairly popular processor for the age and time that it came up and it was used in like fixed solution machines, but it was a very powerful processor. Actually more powerful than had any rights to be in the Genesis. and The way that Sega got this processor because it should have made the machine two or three times as expensive as it was but uh, Sega made a deal with Motorola to buy a, a, a large number of the 68,000's with the promise that um, over the course of the life of the console they would buy an, exponential, an exponentially greater number more of that same processor and so they took something that was very powerful and very expensive and worked out a deal to make it suitable to use in their Sega Genesis console, and this thing blew the doors off of the NES, which it was also competing with at the time. Uh, I believe the Nintendo Entertainment System had a a color palette of, what, 240 colors, and can could only display 8 on screen at any one time, but the Genesis, as I said, uh, had that 512 color color palette, it could do large sprites. I think it had um, it was limited to, in hardware, 80 sprites on screen at a time, which is way more than uh, anything else up until that point in time. I think Turbo Graphics 16 maxed out at uh, 40 or 60 or something. And the Genesis uh, did multiple layers of background scrolling, and it could emulate even more layers of background scrolling to uh, do the parallax effect, which is basically, in a 2D game, when you uh, move from left to right or right to left, You'll see that the background, the elements of the background, scroll at different speeds to uh, simulate depth. And the Genesis, I think, was limited to maybe three or four background layers, but it could emulate almost as many as as you could think of because of uh, some scanline effects built into the hardware. There's some things that the Genesis could do in that respect that were even more capable than what the uh, Super Nintendo could do and also the CPU was really versatile. You were able to do a lot of things with it that weren't hard-coded into the the processor. Uh, there were a lot of software-based effects that that the uh, Genesis could do. Uh, there's a game that came out at the end or later in the 16-bit generation for the Genesis called The Adventures of Batman and Robin and it's a terrible game. It's not a good game, but it is an amazing tech demo for what the Genesis could do without the assistance of ex- assistance of extra software or hardware chips. The Adventures of Batman and Robin it has uh, sprite, rotation, and scaling, and that's done through software. It has some super deep line scrolls, it has some transparencies, it has some 3D objects, some actual polygonal objects, uh, and just all this stuff is done through software, and the only reason that you can implement that is because of uh, the versatility of the Genesis uh, 68000 processor. It wasn't locked down, so there was lots of code out there, there were huge libraries out there for it. And so you could make it do almost, almost anything that you wanted to do with it. Uh, But there were things that it couldn't do. It it didn't do the sprite scaling and rotation uh, in hardware. You could only do it in software, so somebody had to write a code to, that took processor time to do that. And it couldn't do transparencies. It would sometimes do uh, mesh transparencies, but for the most part you just had to accept that you weren't going to be able to do transparencies. And with transparencies you can do uh, fun things like glass and uh, various lighting effects um, that make your game pop, and the the Genesis couldn't do that. Uh, It also had some very decent sound capabilities, but most of the sound channels were were FM, so it was making its sound and making its music in real-time on the system uh, with only one PCM channel, and that PCM channel would be used for uh, samples, Uh, so you did not have a lot of channels for samples. I think you could probably fake some samples through the FM channels, but they, they didn't sound good. Um, They sounded scratchy, I guess would be the most appropriate term. The Genesis did have some really nice sounding like techno style music. Because of all those FM channels, it had like uh, nice synthetic guitar, synthetic bass, and synthetic percussion. And it could kick out some incredible music actually. Uh, Streets of Rage 2, Shinobi 3, there were some really nice soundtracks on the Genesis, but when you got to things that were supposed to sound, say, orchestral or symphonic, the Genesis did not sing in that area. But what did sing was the Super Nintendo. Now, the Super Nintendo is ultimately the winner of the 16-bit generation. It is a very capable machine. and It was made to be extensible, which they did uh, a few times. Uh, There were chips that were added into the cartridges to enable the Super Nintendo to do more than it was, its base capabilities were. I, I think uh, Capcom had one, a DSP chip that went on the cartridges that allowed some, uh, some broader effects, some wireframe models in the games, and then of course uh, Nintendo themselves had two series of uh, processors that were in their cartridges to allow um, polygonal rendering. The second version did uh, actual, actual texture mapping. I think the only game that used that second chip was Doom... No, there were a few. Uh, the second version of the chip, the first one was used in Firefox, the second one was used in Doom, it was used in Yoshi's Island, and it wasn't that chip, it was a different one, but a different one was then used in a Street Fighter Alpha 2, which came out for the Super Nintendo, which is crazy that something like that, I think that was a 48 uh, meg cartridge, it was the biggest cartridge on the system, and it wasn't quite as high quality as uh, the, the game was in the arcade or on the 32-bit home systems, but it was an amazing accomplishment. Uh, the Super Nintendo did scaling and rotation in hardware, not sprite scaling and rotation, it wasn't quite powerful enough to do that, which is something that you could do on the Genesis through uh, software. Uh, the CPU on the Super Nintendo wasn't powerful enough to do that through software, but it did have a, um, a mode in its uh, hardware for background stuff called Mode 7. And basically, Mode 7 allowed scaling and rotation of elements in the background and then you could use that to emulate uh, the scaling and rotation of objects that were in the uh, the play space so they weren't actually in the play space but they looked and acted like they were uh, objects in the play space and Mode 7 was was beyond transparency which is a huge thing I'm not sure how after the Super Nintendo generation, anybody would release a console that didn't do native transparency. But beyond transparency, uh, that Mode 7 gave the Super Nintendo uh, an insane advantage. Uh, That, the uh, extended color palette, 32,000 colors uh, compared to 512, no competition. Uh, The Super Nintendo could show 256 colors out of that color palette of 32,000 on screen, so 256 on screen at one time. Uh, It was no competition. And then the Mode 7, which would allow you to fake the scaling and rotation sprites and also allow you to fake things like um, 3d planes so you could have what is essentially a the ground scale into infinity and that would be a 3d plane upon which you could place your sprites and have it be um, a pseudo 3d playfield and that uh, enabled games like mario kart and f-zero and uh, any number of things actually all the early SNES games had like a Mode 7 function, a Mode 7 level in there somewhere. In Super Ghosts and Ghouls there were the rotating towers, there were the uh, swaying chandeliers in Castlevania 4, the airplane that flew in from the background in Contra 3, uh, and that, that giant turtle boss, that was a Mode 7 effect in the first level of uh, Contra 3. These things were well beyond anything that you could do on the competing 16-bit consoles. Uh, actually, that Turtle Boss is a really good example, because it's, it's almost a full-screen effect, and it looks like a sprite, uh, and you can't do a sprite that big natively on the Super Nintendo, but you can fake it, and it looks amazing. The Super Nintendo also had the advantage of uh, more advanced sound processor, so the Genesis could do six independent channels at the same time, but most of those channels were going to be FM, with uh, one PCM channel, all the Super Nintendo's channels with PCM and the instruments that, that, that it had to offer were not appropriate for everything. So, on some music, some sounds, soundtracks, some for some effects, it, it wasn't quite right. You couldn't get a really good crunchy uh, impact uh, with the SNES's sound setup. If you listen to a hit in something like Streets of Rage versus a a hit in like Final Fight, two completely separate sounds. I think. There were things that you had to do to to digitize in like a really decent crunchy impact. Uh, the same goes for like uh, like a really good crunchy guitar. Like you could do a wah guitar, which was what Capcom's music was on almost everything, and that's its own sound and it's fun and bright, but it's not the same. Couldn't get a good techno track going on the SNES, but if you wanted something big and symphonic, uh, if you've ever heard the soundtrack for uh, Secret of Mana or uh, Chrono Trigger. They're amazing. They're they're almost CD quality, they're beautiful, and there's no competition, really, for a big, like, uh, movie-score-style soundtrack. Super Nintendo was the king of that. So, yes, just the 16-bit generation going from the TurboGrafx-16, the PC Engine, to the Genesis, to the SNES, Uh, and you'll notice this throughout time, each console had its strengths and each console had its weaknesses, But for the middle ground, for basically overall performance, there's a straight line between age and uh, how powerful the console is. And then that holds through moving to to the next generation, which was the 32-bit generation, which was uh, kind of an insane generation in the history of consoles. So for the 32-bit generation, we had way more consoles than I'll probably talk about here. It was something new, and the Genesis and the Super Nintendo had done so well that people wanted to capitalize on the, sec- the success of video games. Uh, add to that, the paradigm of PC gaming was changing in a way that uh, console gaming hadn't had the power to um, to approach yet. So you were seeing some of these, these PC games on consoles, and they were always pared down quite a bit because the PCs were so much more powerful than the consoles. So the 32-bit generation was a chance to catch up with that and capitalize on the wonder of uh, the changing gaming generations from uh, traditional 2D flat uh, sprite-based gaming to polygonal-based gaming. So there are a bunch of companies uh, that tried to come out with 32-bit consoles. The last gasp of Atari was their Atari Jaguar, which was a very unique uh, bespoke piece of hardware that never caught on. I think the most powerful game for the Jaguar was actually a port of doom that John Carmack coded himself and then he made every port of doom after that use that code that he would made for the uh, Jaguar because the assets were pared down enough that it would work on consoles going forward but yeah um, the Jaguar was not successful uh, after that there was the 3DO they launched about the same time I think and the 3DO was the first 32-bit um, console and 32-bit uh, console that failed it was not a good piece of hardware. The 3DO is actually almost not worth mentioning. I think it had a good port of Street Fighter, uh, Super Street Fighter, and that might have been the only good game for the 3DO, and um, because the graphics hardware was not dedicated, like it, it was a, a powerful system-ish, but I don't think it had uh, really strong dedicated um, graphics hardware. Uh, that, that, that port of Super Street Fighter didn't even have parallax scrolling in the background so the main 32-bit consoles the consoles of the uh, the fifth generation were the Sega Saturn uh, the PlayStation 1 and the Nintendo 64 now personally I was a gigantic Sega Saturn fan Uh, that's the console I glommed on to because I was a Genesis owner and I loved uh, some of the games for the Genesis the Genesis had some games because of the um, the powerful, for the time, processor that did uh, really nifty things and that that charmed me. I was like, well, the, the Saturn uh, will be that same situation where it will have some unique games that do really nifty things. And it was. It was also the, uh, the least successful of the major consoles of the generation, and it was really the least powerful. Like As I said before, every console that comes out has its own unique strengths and weaknesses, but for the Saturn when Sega developed it and Sega had developed at that point in time so many uh, hardware solutions trying to uh, keep mind share and market share for the generation that they watered down their own brand but the, uh, the, the Sega Saturn was made to be a continuation of the last generation as far as something that could be a sprite pushing monster it could push uh, traditional side-scrolling games uh, better than anything that had come before it but that's not where the generation was going so once they saw hardware demos of what was happening with the uh, with Sony's console that they'd announced, it, it was amazing. They were like, "Oh shit, what do we do now?" So they changed the uh, system board a little bit. They added a second processor, uh, but they didn't make the system into a system that works in parallel because that wasn't how uh, the hardware worked at the time. There was there were very few devices that actually did parallel processing, so that second that second CPU that was on the Saturn system board kind of sat fallow for most games. Like you had to be a master coder uh, coding to the, uh, the silicon, as it were, coding an assembly to make that hardware, that second uh, processor do anything because basically you were taking code and switching it very quickly between both processors. So it was still functioning in serial because they used the same bus. have one processor process a thing while the other process was, processor was doing a thing and then switch back and forth very quickly. And that was, I don't know, maybe 10%, 5% of games actually worked like that. And even when they did, it wasn't as efficient as just having one good processor. And there were some other quirky things about how the Saturn did things. Uh, For one thing, it could not do hardware transparency uh, in the 3D space. It could do 2D hardware transparency, but even then there was some funkiness to how those effects were processed. Uh, It could do transparency in the background layers. And because of that, there were some things that you could do to, to emulate uh, 3D hardware transparency, but it was done very few times in the, uh, the course of the system, the life of the Sega Saturn. The Saturn also had uh, some things that were just, because it was an older piece of hardware, it couldn't do onboard or hardware uh, audio decompression. So if you notice, like the, uh, the Saturn actually has a great audio processor. It's a Yamaha-based audio processor. 32 channels of sound. You can generate real-time music uh, and FM channels. that sounded great, but it was a CD system. 700 megs of uh, storage. You could just have lots of Red audio. You didn't really need to do chiptunes anymore. Saturn was probably the last uh, great console for, for doing chip music, but it didn't do much of it. There was some, there was some Japanese games. One of them I have uh, that's called Sukiyu Gurintai does FM channel music, and it, it really sounds really good, actually but uh, I've seen some things that say it actually mixes chiptunes and uh, PCM um, digitized audio. But nonetheless, it sounds great, but for things like voice samples and stuff, they're they're rarely as clean as they would be on, say, the PlayStation, which has some really efficient and advanced audio processing. It does uh, hardware audio compression, so it can do effects in real time on that audio, and it just sounds super clean on the PlayStation. So it had all these things going against it, uh, but it did, like I said, fantastic 2D traditional sprite-based games, and it had, because of how it it drew to the, the uh, screen, one of the, the graphics processors for the Saturn was called the VDP-2. The VDP-2, and basically the VDP-2 does all those background processes, like Mode 7 for the SNES, it does that on steroids. So the VDP-2 can have Uh, Say the Saturn could do one layer, I'm sorry, the Super Nintendo could do one layer of Mode 7 going to the horizon. Uh, The Saturn could do five of those. So it could have the ground and the sky as infinite planes that uh, stretch and extend to the background. Those planes could be textured, so it could be the surface of a planet, or uh, there was one where uh, it was like technology that went to the horizon, or just anything. And then you could have a transparent layer of clouds on top of that, because the VDP-2 could do transparencies. Uh, and then you use the VDP-1, to, which drew sprites, but uh, you could use that to simulate polygons. It drew its polygons as quads, which is not how polygons are drawn by any hardware today, because it's inefficient. So it would draw these polygons as basically square sprites, and then those sprites would be distorted in real time to create the polygons that were on screen. It was inefficient, but it did have it, its advantages, which are, some of them are above my pay grade to understand. Uh, and there were some beautiful games uh, that used a combination of all those effects to a uh, great advantage. Um, the Panzer Dragoons, uh, some of the most popular games on the system, they do that, they, they draw the ground and the sky to the horizon, and that takes uh, processing uh, weight off of the CPU and off of the other graphics hardware. You can have an out, basically an outdoor, scenario that's 3D that looks great and is not straining the system so neither the uh, Nintendo 64 nor the PlayStation can do that they don't have that capability and so if you have an outdoor scene the horizon is not something it can be drawn to it's it's more difficult to fake it as well like that ground is made out of individual polygons and those take processing power to draw those not something that you have to have on the Saturn So that's a fine advantage, but it's still, it's not enough as compared to the PlayStation uh, 1, also known as the PSX. So the PSX uh, is actually not the most powerful system of the generation, but it was by far the most popular. I'm going to talk a little bit about what Nintendo did to shoot themselves in the foot, but rest assured, if you achieve the middle ground and it's inexpensive and easy to make games for your system, uh, and you have infinite advertising money, because Sony was the biggest electronics manufacturer in the world at the time, then you're probably going to have a good time, and Sony had a great time. Uh, the, the PSX, the PlayStation 1, was a fantastic piece of hardware. It was elegant, it was easy to code for, but it had enough heads, headroom that uh, over time, through efficient coding and just getting to be more familiar with the uh, with the hardware, the games got progressively better. It did do true transparency all out of it. It was one of the big things that sold the beauty of those games was transparency everywhere. Uh, also, as compared to the Saturn, the Saturn had more memory, but when you broke that memory down, it was all discreet. Uh, there were like specific buses going from these instructions to this, this cache of memory. I think it only had, the Saturn had uh, 512k for textures, where the memory on the the video memory on the PlayStation was unified, so you could have a gig of memory to do. Not, I'm sorry, not a gig. Many generations later, you had a, a meg of memory to do with as you will. I think uh, usually averaged about uh, developers usually averaged around 700k for uh, texture cache memory. So the PlayStation and probably some hardware compression and decompression of textures as well. So, the Saturn textures, and this is what I was talking to with that uh, developer from Tantalus. Now, Tantalus was a Saturn development company that uh, did ports. Uh, they did ports of Cygnosis games, mostly. Cygnosis did the Wipeout games, and those Wipeout games were beautiful. They had rich, vibrant textures, and they were uh, fast and smooth, and they had lots of transparency. And so Tantalus took their engine, that they developed over time, and uh, did ports of the Cygnosis games, and then uh, Sega itself was impressed enough with Tantalus's ports of those Cygnosis games that Sega had Tantalus do some ports of uh, Sega's uh, own some of Sega's own arcade games, even though Sega had some amazingly talented in-house development studios. So uh, Tantalus did Wipeout and Wipeout XL as Wipeout 2097 on the Saturn, and then uh, they also did Manx TT Superbike, which was a Model 2 uh, arcade game that Sega had developed. And usually Sega did all their own stuff in-house, but they shipped this, they farmed this out. I think Tantalus also did House of the Dead, which was a Sega arcade game that was then translated uh, onto the Saturn by Tantalus. So Tantalus was a talented developer, but from what this, uh, this artist told me, he said that their engine was one of the most powerful engines on the Sega Saturn as far as, you know, development tools and they maxed out performance at uh, 48,000 polygons per second, which was way more powerful than most other games on the system. I think uh, we were talking about Tomb Raider, because it was in the Tomb Raider thread. He said that Tomb Raider maxes out at uh, 36 or 38,000 polygons per second, but um, they did 48,000 at the end of their uh, generation, at the end of their development. I think the last game they did was House of the Dead. But he said that um, Cygnosis uh, the final version of their engine did a hundred and twenty-thousand? It was hundred and eighty-thousand. Maybe hundred twenty-thousand polygons per second. Well, it's a racing game, F1, so there's probably a bunch of instancing there, so... There's things that, that cut down on the, the amount of processing power used, but it was well beyond anything that was ever displayed on the Sega Saturn. The PlayStation was a beast. And one big advantage that it had, not over the Saturn, but over the N64, was that the PlayStation's games were running off CD. Uh, CD was great. It had a huge amount of storage as compared to the cartridges that came before it. And so you could do things like full motion video. You could do things like uh, real CD quality music. So some games actually had CD tracks on the game that, that, that the system would just play in game to fantastic effect. The media that surrounded these games was part of the experience. So you play something like Resident Evil and you have real music playing in the background and real... Uh, full-motion video cutscenes of fairly crappy 90s um, CGI, but yeah, it, it changed the experience. It was a whole different experience, and they, they were very cool, and you also had more room on the, the disc for more varieties of levels and environments, uh, so you didn't have something like um, the expansive environments of some of the N64 games where because of uh, z-buffering and just a more powerful system. And z-buffering is when you don't draw all the polys that are in a scene because they're hidden by other polys, so it saves you some uh, processor time. So you didn't have these super expansive environments on the PS1, and when you did, they were they were not as, as, as aesthetically pleasing, but you were able to do just enough. And then some of that z-buffering was actually done in software in a lot of later games, so you got the advantages there. There's a game uh, that released late in the PS1's lifecycle called Crash Team Racing, which is a uh, mascot kart racer in the vein of Mario Kart that looks just about as good as almost anything uh, in that vein of, uh, you know, in that genre that was released on the Nintendo 64. And it has the Z-buffering, and it has uh, super detailed textures that the Nintendo 64 didn't have because of the limitations of the the media that it used and some other reasons it will, will look at. But yeah, a lot was possible because of the efficiency of the hardware of the PlayStation 1, the PSX. But as powerful as the PSX was, it was not even close to what could be achieved with the Nintendo 64. So the Nintendo 64 is only in the 32-bit generation because of uh, when it was released um, and what it competed against, but really it's in a class by itself. It's its own generation of hardware. It was so different than the other hardware that had come out. It was the first uh, to ship with an analog pad, which is standard now, and that means that the pad can move in uh, more than, or the stick can move in more than just the eight directions of the uh, the old digital sticks or digital pads that the uh, consoles used before. And even though it was a 64-bit console, which means that its processor, its CPU, can address uh, instruction sets that are 64 bits wide, and I just found this out recently, actually very few games were coded on the Nintendo 64 with 64-bit instruction sets. The cartridges were too small, it would have taken up too much space. 32-bit wide instruction sets are significantly smaller, and when you're using a limited storage media, um, you need to save all the space you can, so most games were coded as 32-bit. But it was just a much more advanced piece of silicon. It was uh, The CPU was created by SGI, who did most of the, uh, the 3D rendering of the 90s. Um, they were way ahead of the, the curve. And so Nintendo snapped up their silicon. It was actually supposed to be Sega, but Sega of Japan didn't want to, uh, take instruction from Sega of America and went their own way. And, uh, yeah, took a hit because of it. But, uh, to Nintendo's benefit, actually all three of these consoles are tied together. The PlayStation came about because Nintendo had ordered a, uh, an optical drive peripheral for the uh the snes that sony developed so a cd player that would uh, play larger games to attach to the snes that sony developed and then uh, nintendo dropped them said "Nah, we're gonna go our own way and sega's like all right or i'm sorry sony's like all right that's fine uh we'll just crush you in this generation and they did but the nintendo 64 was a revelation as compared to the other consoles but it was different uh mario 64 was the first it wasn't the first 3d platform game uh it's all often presented as such i think jumping flash came before that which was a playstation game jumping flash was first person so it didn't have to deal with the camera issues but super mario 64 was the most amazing quantum leap of of game design that anyone had ever seen up until that point in time so you look at something like crash bandicoot on the uh the playstation one uh, it's beautiful, but it's basically just a traditional platforming game. You just play into the screen as opposed to a side-scrolling game. And then you had Knights into Dreams, which wasn't a platforming game at all, but it had a mascot-style character, so it was compared, and it was basically an on-the-rails game as well. But Mario 64 was a true 3D game. It had true, open, very expansive 3D environments that gave you lots to do inside those environments and complex play mechanics but that were easy to, to pick up and control because of that analog controller. They felt fluid and and free and it just it was a beautiful experience. At the time I, I poo-pooed on a little bit because I was like, well these other consoles can do this. We've got Tomb Raider, because because Tomb Raider came out on both the Sega Saturn and the PlayStation 1 and it was a different experience than Mario 64. But uh, while Mario 64 has aged very well, it's still fun to play, Tomb Raider has not aged as well. On the Sega Saturn, Tomb Raider is just, it's, it's an ugly game. Um, the texture size that the Saturn can do versus the, what the PlayStation can do is different, and so those textures on the Saturn look horrendous. And there's some fake transparency on the Saturn 2, which looks horrendous, but not as bad as the texture stuff. Tomb Raider on the PlayStation 1 looks alright, but it doesn't control well. It's not fun to play because it's made to be used with that digital controller and like very angular square sectors of control. So it works, but it's not the same. It is not the same at all. Super Mario 64 is a is a whole different beast. But back to what the Nintendo 64 could do, Nintendo's games were all on cartridges. They wanted to um, be able to, um, to, to protect their IP. They didn't want their code to leak out. They didn't want people to start pirating their games. So they put their games on a media that they thought would prevent that and also For third-party developers, they had to license the use of those cartridges back to Nintendo, so even though the media was expensive, Nintendo was making money off of it hand over fist. problem with cartridges is that they're small. It's a little storage for a lot of money versus a lot of storage for pennies, which is what CDs were even at the time, a lot of storage for pennies. Uh, The cartridges were super expensive, they were relatively small. Uh, The advantage was that the cartridges had MUCH faster access, I think, the uh, cartridges could access data at something like a hundred times the rate that the, uh, the game systems could access that data off the CDs. And so, the fact that the games were smaller uh, didn't affect how much could be on screen uh, at one time as much. There was an issue where Nintendo had a very tiny texture cache for its games, so the amount of unique, or the number of unique, The size of the unique textures that you could push on screen at any one time was severely handicapped. But over time, developers found ways to work around that. Uh, Nintendo had some microcode that you could use to deal with that issue, to um, replicate code over and over again to make it look like there was more texture on screen. And yeah, the games were unique and beautiful. They just, if you're going to do a realistic game, they didn't look quite as realistic, although none of the games looked realistic at the time because of the texture limitation. The balance was that the Nintendo console did trilinear filtering uh, which kind of smoothed out all the edges on the screen which made the games look a little bit cleaner if it was implemented well. It was in hardware but it didn't look great on everything but it did look really nice on a lot of the first party games and then Nintendo's chosen developers like Factor Five and Rare were allowed enough access to the, uh, the, the keys to the kingdom that they pushed out some content that was also extraordinarily beautiful for the time. And like I said, these games, uh, if you look at something like Banjo-Kazooie, one of Rare's games, and probably the best in my opinion at what it did, it's uh, the least compromised of their games, it looks almost as lush as something like uh, Crash Bandicoot, which is a lush looking game. It has a vibrant color depth and it has bilinear filtering on screen to make everything look more smooth. But uh, for something like uh, Banjo-Kazooie, it has that filtering, it has the rich color depth, and it has way more on-screen. Like, if you go to the top of one of the levels, you can look down and you'll see all of the level. They probably use some really aggressive level of detail to get that in. Uh, You can do something like that in some PlayStation games. They they start doing stuff that had, like, nice level of detail, and some other effects, but it, it wasn't even the same. It wasn't to the same level. Uh, but because of the expensive setup where it was hard, it was expensive to develop third-party games with the Nintendo 64, uh, Nintendo kept a lot of the developer tools close to the chest, so that third-party developers when they were porting games were crippled, they were handicapped. So PlayStation 1 games, not just because of size, but because uh, of access to the actual hardware, PlayStation 1 games ported to the Nintendo 64, sometimes they looked bad, they looked like crap. And the same was, you know, same was true for the other way around, because the Nintendo 64 is natively a more powerful piece of hardware. There's a game at the end of the generation called um, Rayman 2, and Rayman 2 was developed on the Nintendo 64. It's considered one of the greatest platforming games of the generation. This was then backported to the PlayStation 1 to capitalize and make some money, and the PlayStation 1 version is very impressive for a PlayStation 1 game, but it is severely handicapped. In graphical presentations compared to the Nintendo 64 game uh, because that's just the way it was and there was an add-on actually used for that game that extended the uh, that doubled the RAM that the Nintendo 64 had access to uh, that just uh, made it far and away a more powerful console it almost kind of slides over into that sixth generation as far as some of the things it can do so yeah uh, just a clean line from uh, the PC engine to the Genesis to the SNES to the thousand other 32-bit systems in there, uh, to the Saturn, to the uh, PlayStation 1, to the Nintendo 64. And then, that kind of stuff was interesting to me. So this is just, a lot of this information is stuff that I had known before because I used to, to stockpile this information. It was super interesting to me, but uh, in doing some research, I did find out some new things, and uh, this was good times for me. This is a long... Ad- Man, I'm going to have fun editing this, I think. How do I make this not boring? I know. I'm going to put in some really sweet PCM music from the, or some really sweet chip tunes from the various generations of the consoles as I go through this, and it's going to make it exciting. Yeah. Oh, good times. All right, kids. Thanks for listening.